o'clock on a Jerusalem Friday morning, and a man staggers to the top of a hill to be crucified. Instantly, he's distinguished from the average crucifixion victim. Ordinarily, it takes many strong men to force the victim, knowing what's coming, into submission. But this man quietly lays down his cross, ready to face his sentence. On his head is a wreath of piercing thorns. Hours before, they were beaten into his head as a joke. Some of the thorns were pounded into his scalp, breaking off as they met the resistance of his skull bone. The others were driven into his head with hammers, slicing through his skin, weaving in and out of his temples and the flesh of his forehead. Something else is different about this man: his back. Which is about to rub against the rough-hewn wood of a cross has been shredded. Time and time again, the cat of nine tails—a wicked instrument of torture—a whip with nine leather thongs bearing jagged bits of metal and broken glass—has slashed his back, opening furrows and leaving him a bleeding mass. When you look into his face, you can see the black and blue, blood-filled bruises of one who has been struck repeatedly by angry fists. You can see the hairless crimson follicles where his beard used to be before it was yanked out a few hours ago. Still clinging to his tortured features are gobs of spit that taunting men have ejected hatefully into his face. Yet even still, there are no bitter curses from him. Only a loving smile for the soldier who's been tasked with the job of attaching him to his cross. The man lays down and stretches out his hands to allow the jagged spikes to be driven through his flesh and muscles into the rugged wood. Is lifted up, and then dropped into the hole with a jarring crunch. And 
for the first time, the man's whole body weight comes crashing down, only to be arrested by the three spikes that hold him in place. Few humans will ever know the unspeakable pain of this moment. Usually, it rips from the victim an involuntary, unearthly, gut-wrenching scream. Amazingly, though, this man is silent. Now, a six-hour struggle begins. of his head and shoulders now sags into his chest, cutting off his breath. To inhale, he will have to pull against the nails that fasten his hands and push off against the nail that holds his feet. He's only been on the cross for a few minutes, but already it seems like a lifetime. For his enemies, this torture is not enough. Passers-by on their ways to celebrate the Holy Passover stick out their tongues and shake their heads at him. Isn't this the guy that said destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it back? But look at him now. Hey fella, if you're really the son of God, why don't you get off that cross? Leering religious leaders who gleefully stationed themselves at the base of his cross nudge one another. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Hey guys, if he comes off the cross, we'll believe him, won't we? <laughs> hey, by the way, did he say he was the son of God? Well, where's his father now? Hey, son of God, why doesn't your father come and take you off that cross if he'll have you? But even that abuse is incomplete. Now the two criminals hanging beside him join in the heckling. Bitterly, they accuse him of being a charlatan. If you are who you say you are, climb down from the cross and save yourself and us too. Somehow in all this suffering, the man in the middle still has not spoken one word. Finally, his lips open. But there's no vengeance in his voice. There's no ferocity in his face. There's no judgment in the set of his jaw. Instead, he solemnly utters, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Hours that seem like eternities pass. One, then two, then three hours. Unmercifully, the sun beats down on the three victims. But eerily, without warning, the sunlight begins to disappear. No, it's not the darkness of a thunderstorm, but the dark pall of night in the afternoon. As the last glow of daylight fades, Perhaps some at the floor of the cross notice that the agony on the face of the man in the middle suddenly intensifies. 
What they could never know is that the torture he's endured is nothing compared to what will happen in the darkness. Somehow, pressed into the compendium of these three hours, he will suffer the equivalent of an eternity in hell. The prophet Isaiah said that God would make his soul an offering for sin. Somehow, he will feel the guilt and the shame of all the billions of people who ever lived or ever will live on the earth. In the darkness, his body suffering excruciating pain, his soul crushed with the weight of the world's sin and guilt, the man on the middle cross has one more grief to suffer. On the cross as he carries all the sins of the world, he longs for the embrace and encouragement of his father. But instead, as he hangs in agony, the Father in heaven turns his head and leaves his only begotten Son all alone. This is the cup he prayed in the garden might pass. But it doesn't pass, and heartbroken he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The end is drawing close now. These hours on the cross have drained Jesus' body fluid. And still straining for breath, the inside of his mouth is like leather. So he cries out, I thirst. Someone puts sour wine to his mouth. Cried out, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And it's over. He is dead. Will you sing this with me? When I survey the
For all of us who feel from time to time that the world is upside down, there was no place in the world's history where it was more upside down than on that hill called Calvary. Everything seemed backward, and you may have felt it during the first part of the service. For one thing, why is Earth's greatest person dying Earthworth's death? Why is the giver of life dying? Why is the judge on trial? Why is the son rejected by his father? I have so many questions when I look at the cross, but there's one question I especially have on a Palm Sunday. I grew up skeptical and also grew up in church, which was kind of an interesting juxtaposition. But I wound up asking my parents many questions when I was a kid, and it's amazing to me after all these decades, the questions that I asked in childhood are the ones that still get my attention. We would have Palm Sunday services like we're having today. And after the service, I would ask my mom a question. I probably was no more than five or six, but I said, well, the people welcomed Jesus that Sunday morning. Well, where were they on Friday? I mean, that's a pretty narrow period of time. And Jerusalem is not that big of a city by modern standards, probably no more than 25,000. So all these people that welcomed him, and they did welcome him on that day that we well, that we commemorate on Palm Sunday. Jesus rode into town on a donkey into Jerusalem, and the people worshiped him as king. They cried out, Hosanna. They threw palm branches on the ground in front of him to make a pathway, and some even took their jackets off and laid them on the ground. Well, where were they on Friday when he was being crucified? This is the nasty little truth. The same people in large part who were crying, Hosanna, on Sunday morning, we're crying out, crucify him on Friday. Oh, what, what caused the change? What caused the change to happen so rapidly? Why did the people that celebrated him on Sunday call out for the most cruel form of death? Do you realize that in the Roman world, no citizen could ever die of crucifixion, regardless of how heinous their crimes? Crucifixion, which was invented by the Carthaginians some 700 years before, was used as a punishment only for the worst enemies of Rome and slaves. Why would the people that called him king on Sunday want him to experience such a horrific death on Friday? You know, the answer is not historical. I mean, it is historical in the sense that we have to go back to history to learn the story, but the answer is as, is as relevant and as present as this day because the reason why the crowds turned on Jesus 2,000 years ago is the identical reason why people turn on him today. And this is simply this. They were in love with their idea of a Savior, and they were disappointed with God's idea of a Savior. And you know, it all comes down to this. The, the discrepancy there between people's idea of a Savior and God's idea of a Savior comes down to a disagreement about what's wrong with us. See, when Jesus came into the world, and this bears on the reason why they worshipped him as king, he had a way of dealing with the symptoms of a broken world. If people were hungry... He could, take, he could take one sack lunch and feed thousands of people. If people were sick, he could make them well. If people were dealing with mental and emotional disorders, he could free them up to live life the way they were meant to be. And he was rough on the funeral business because if people were dead, he could fix that. 
So you understand why the people of Jesus' time wanted to make him king, because, hey, you know, here's the deal. We, we live in a political climate here in the United States. Seems like we're always in some sort of political campaign. When was the last time you heard a political leader, maybe for president, say, if you elect me, the sick people will get well, the hungry people will eat, the dead people will come back to life? I've heard some weird promises, but I've never heard that before. You see, the, the Jewish people have been promised that they were going to have a very special king. It was promised in Genesis chapter 3. And for 4,000 years, they've been looking for him. And God had been dropping hints along the way. Stuff like he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be of the tribe of Judah and all that kind of thing. They've been looking forward to the king because God said to King David when he was on the throne, one of your descendants is going to be extraordinary. He's going to do things that nobody else has ever done. And he will rule forever. Man, in David's day, kings died, but God said, this king is going to be so different, he's going to rule forever. So when Jesus comes along and he's healing the sick and causing paralyzed people to walk and hungry people to be fed and people with emotional disorders to be liberated, they said, he's the king. And you know what? They were right. But where it all went sideways was they wanted a king that would fix symptoms That's our problem today. When I talk to people about why they don't believe in God or why they don't believe in Jesus, they will point to the symptoms of a broken world and say those symptoms exist. Consequently, I don't believe in God. If God were to heal the symptoms, then I would, they don't put it in that language, but that's exactly what they're talking about. See, what the people of Jesus' day didn't understand, that those people that Jesus fed, they would get hungry again. The people who were sick, or they were made well, they were going to get sick again. The, the people like Lazarus that he raised back to life, they were going to eventually die. Jesus alleviated symptoms. God did not send his son into the world just to fix symptoms. Ready for this? He sent his son into the world to reach down deep and bring the cure. Well, somebody could say, well, Mark, I still don't understand the disconnect. Surely everybody would have been glad to have had the cure. <laughs> Not hardly, I'll tell you why. When you talk to people in our world today about what's wrong, they will tell you the people that are causing the trouble. Well, it's the people in that party. It's that people in the, that are conservative. It's the people who are progressive. It's, the, it's this crowd or it's that crowd. How many times do you hear someone say, the problem is with me? See, that's the problem. The problem is inside. All the things that we encounter, the injustice, the racism, the hate, the abuse, the pain, the anger, frustration, the illness, all those things are, are symptoms of what ultimately is broken. As a pastor, oftentimes people ask me about a particular act and they'll say, is this sin or is that sin? What people don't understand is sin is a force. It's, it's, it's an entity within itself. It is the un-God. God has a way of doing things. Sin is the un-God. Are there stuff, specific stuff you can do that is an act of sin? Sure. But sin is like cancer. Cancer has symptoms. But ultimately at the root, it's a malformation of cells. And that's what sin is. When God created our first parents, put them in the garden, he basically gave them a slow pitch. One rule, don't break it. You have a rule. That's how you can have free will. But I'm going to give you everything that you want. They even had everlasting life. And they, they basically flipped God off 
And from that point on, here's how the book of Romans says it in Romans chapter 5. The Bible says by one person, Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin, because everyone has sinned. And that's the mess we're in. When Jesus came into our world, it wasn't enough to fix symptoms. He had to go down deep into the root of every human being's life and fix the sin. Let me ask you a question. Suppose we live pretty much in, in bi-level houses, at least here in Wichita, because of basements. But suppose you're down in the basement and someone left the water running in a bathtub, and it isn't long before the floor upstairs is covered with water, and then the water begins to make its way down into the basement where you are. And at first, they're just drips, and then there's streams of water and puddles on the ground. Let me ask you, how would you fix the problem? Would you get towels and put them down? Would you get a mop and try to mop it up, set buckets out to catch the water? Or would you go upstairs and turn off the faucet? And that is what Jesus did. Now, here is the thing. The people who were expecting a king, they wanted a lion. You know, that's a symbol. Lion is a symbol of a king. They wanted a lion. And the reason why they blew up was Jesus didn't come the first time to be the lion. He came to be the lamb. Whether... Whether it's cosmopolitan, whether it's accepted in today's world, it really is completely irrelevant. The way God looked at things, every sin must be paid for. For instance, if you think about the sins in your life and ask the question, how many of my sins must be paid for? The answer to that is every, every single one. Every, every single sin of yours is going to be paid for somehow. Everyone. And in the Old Testament, they, they brought sacrifices, but the sacrifices never really paid for sin. They were a picture that somehow life has got to be traded for death. And that's why Jesus came into our world to be the lamb, to be the lamb of God. And it just didn't compute to people who were looking for a symptom fixer, people who were looking for a king that would have juice and muscle and take charge. He came and it just felt so passive. If he's their king, what's he doing on a cross? Well, it's not like this text that I'm going to close with is the only answer to that question in the Bible, but it's my favorite. It's in the book of Revelation. You know Revelation is the last book in the Bible. It's pretty much about future stuff. But in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, something really, really interesting happens. John the Apostle, who's part of Jesus' group, he's 90 years old at this point, exiled to the island of Patmos because he was politically incorrect, preached about Jesus. And while he's out there, he's invited into heaven to look at what's going down up there. And something really incredible, awesome is going down. John is treated to being able to see the throne room of heaven. And there is God majestically sitting on the throne. And John tries, but there's no way you can explain how awesome that is. And he's surrounded by millions of angels and surrounded by millions of believers who now are in heaven. And John watches as the one on the throne has a scroll in his hand. Now, you and I might hear the language of what happened next, and we might not be able to pick up on it, but every Jewish person in John's time knew exactly because John gives us two clues about the scroll, the book in God's hand. First of all, he said it was written on both sides. That's huge. And then it had seven seals that the seven sections were sealed together. Now, like I say, that may not make a lot of sense to us, but John knew instantly what it was. It was a title deed. And not just any title deed. It was a title deed to something that had been lost. 
See, what could happen in Bible days is a family could get so up against it that they couldn't pay their bills, and so they would start selling, selling their stuff in order to get money to make it. But when they got to the end of their stuff, there was nothing left to do except to sell what was most precious to the Jewish people as far as possessions goes, and that was their land. And when a Jewish family had to sell their land and they went bankrupt, they would go down to the city hall and a document would be prepared and there was writing on both sides. On the inside would be the horrible story of how the land got lost. It would be the story of their death, the story of things that went wrong. It would just be a description of why they lost the property. And on the backside, it would be written what it would take to buy the property back. And not just anybody could buy it back. It had to be a qualified person. It was the credentials of the qualified person and the price that would have to be paid to buy it back. And the reason why the inside was sealed, it was so embarrassing, it wasn't left for the public to read. It was such a, the story of how it got lost was just so sad, it was covered up, and that's why it was sealed. And when John looks at the throne and he sees God holding this book in his hand, John gets it, he knows it's the title deed for the world. It's the title deed for every human being, every man, woman, boy, and girl. It, it was the story of how it got lost and who it would take to buy it back, who would be credentialed, and the price that would be paid. And John is looking, is there anybody who's going to be qualified? Is there anybody who will step up and take the deed? Well, the angels can't do it, none of them. I mean, they want the price to be paid, but they're angels. They, they, they can't connect with us. And God can't pay the price because God is the one who has been offended. He's the one to whom the debt is owed. And so it's just a sad moment in heaven briefly because nobody was qualified. None, none of the millions of people, none of the angels could, could open the scroll. And John starts crying. Because he realizes ultimately it just means we're all lost and we pack our bags for hell. And one of, the, one of the elders there goes to John and says, John, don't cry. There is somebody here who is qualified. And that's when Jesus steps forward. And for anybody who would have ever wondered why he came to be the lamb the first time, in Revelation chapter 5 in heaven, well, let me just read it to you. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slain, but it was now standing. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, they sang a song with these words, you are worthy, you're qualified to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slain and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. You understand he came to be the lamb because this was all lost and he was qualified and he paid the price. Will you hear Cynthia as she sings? The lamb has overcome. precious blood we have pardoned and we 
think about this personally now. He's not the God who comes and fixes symptoms, although he, he helps us every day. 
He came to get down deep into what's wrong with the world and make it right. And basically what he did in simple terms, he took your bill that you would have to pay yourself for every sin you've ever committed. As I said earlier, every sin will be paid for. Either I will stubbornly insist on paying my own bill, and that's why it takes an eternity in hell, or I'll let Jesus pay. And he came into the world and he took that document. On one side, it was everything that ever went wrong with you, everything wrong you've ever done, every thought you've ever had, sealed up. Many other people don't know it's sealed up. You know it's in your, in your heart. And on the back side was what it was going to take to buy your forgiveness. A qualified person, the perfect son of God, he ran the table. He lived for 33 years, ran the table, never did one thing wrong. Took that perfect life, laid it down on a Roman cross. That's what made him qualified. And you know, I didn't, I didn't put this in, in the narration, but when he died on the cross, he said one work in Greek, die. It means it is finished. And tetelestai is an interesting word. It was a word in Greek that artists would use when they put the final stroke on a painting put the last stroke on a painting and they would say it's finished nothing more left to do you know here's the thing when, when Jesus came to pay your price he didn't put down a down payment and say the rest is up to you he paid it in full you remember the back side of that lost deed qualified the bill he paid the bill and right now there's an offer on the table and it goes something like this if you will come spiritually bankrupt now, if you don't think there's anything wrong with you and you just have symptoms of a broken world, God can do nothing. He can do zero for you. But for anyone who is willing to say, you know, the problem is in here. The problem is with me. I'm broken and I can't fix myself. And if you come like that to God, regardless of what you've done, regardless of the things that you are ashamed of, you may have done so many things wrong that the people that used to love you don't love you anymore, but that's not God. He will love you no matter what. And you can come just like you are. And you can say, Lord, I'm coming. I'm declaring bankruptcy. I can't fix myself. I've tried, but I can't fix myself. But I believe that Jesus paid for my sins. He traded his life for mine. And I believe he arose from the grave and I want to accept him as my savior. And he will not, God, God will not force his way in anybody's life. You, you must accept him. And it's a free gift. God's not asking you to join a particular church, become an adherent to a religion. He's asking you to receive his son, Jesus Christ. Just like a, a bride or groom stands here and the minister says, will you have this man to be your husband? Will you have this woman to be your wife? And the bride says, I do. And today God is standing before you. He's made a way for you to be forgiven and clean and live forever. And he's presenting his living son before you who paid your price. And God is asking you, will you have my son to be your savior and king? And you can say yes. I want to do something. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. These aren't magic words. They're just words that say a big yes to God. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray this prayer slowly, line by line, because if at any moment you want to check out and abort the prayer, you can do that. Maybe something in it is not something you want to say. 
God will not force his way into anybody's life. But if today it's very clear in your mind, that's because God has opened your mind to understand. If it's very clear in your mind that Jesus died for you, then you can pray this prayer with me and the everlasting living son of God will be on the other end and he will hear your prayer. You ready? You can do this in North Auditorium, watching online, watching on television. Just everyone, would you just bow your head with me? If you're a believer, just pray for those who'll be making the decision. Dear God, I am a sinner. The problem is with me. I cannot fix myself. But I believe you love me. And I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. Then I believe he arose from the grave. And since he's alive, I want him to be my savior and my king. Give me the strength to live for him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, you may have a lot of questions. You probably will always have some, but I want to help you. I have a gift I've prepared for you. It's a, it's a gift box. There's a Bible just like I preach from. There's a little book I wrote that answers a lot of questions, a lot of great things. And so right now, wherever you are on our campus, all over there are info centers. And you can just go to one of those info centers and say, I prayed with Mark, and they will give you the gift box. There's also a text option if you want to take a shortcut. But we're so thankful that you're here. We're looking forward to seeing you back tonight, 6.30 for Night of Worship. Next week, biggest Easter services in the history of New Spring. We'll see you next weekend. God bless.